Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord God, I pray for myself. I pray for this body. I pray for our church. I pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, I pray that you give us a spirit of humility, humble hearts that would receive your word with gratitude, uh, with humility, and um, with a passionate desire to do. Lord, I, uh, I ask this, this, that this text penetrate our souls as we wrestle in this life. I pray that as we reflect on who you are and what you've done, that we might be inspired to live more faithfully, pious and holy lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, to locate us, as I said, we're in the book of Psalms. Psalm is a, Psalms is a book of poetry. It's 150 different poems collected from the Hebrew people throughout various periods in their history, in the history of Israel. And many of them are songs that would have been sung in worship by them. King David is attributed with almost half of them. That's 73 psalms. And the book of Psalms itself is actually broken up into five books inside of it, each with kind of their own theme. And so the entirety of Psalms can be broken down into these categories, and yet really we can break Psalms down into one of two categories. Each Psalm can fit into a Psalm of praise or a Psalm of lament. Praise is what I mentioned earlier, extolling the glories of God through worship, through song, for who he is, for who he's done, for what he will do. But lament is an expression of sorrow of the author, giving over to God the anguish and broken state of the heart and of emotions. So thus the Psalms are, a unique, are unique in Scripture in how they capture the human experience, the authentic human experience, the highs and lows of our thoughts and our emotions. And Psalm 119 is very unique in the book. It's organized into 22 different sections each with eight lines or eight verses. In your Bible, it might show up like mine, where you have each verse is several lines. But in the book, each verse is a singular line. And each of the units, each of the sections, has a title. So if you look in your Bible, you see ours this morning is Teth. That is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so Psalm 119 is actually organized in order of the Hebrew alphabet. And each line, each verse, begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's important, and that's beautiful as we dive into, this, ver- dive into this, this psalm, because each of these verses, almost every single one, has a unifying and common theme. And that's the Word of God. Of the 176 verses in Psalm 119, all of them, with the exception of five, explicitly mention the Word of God, whether it's His commandments, His precepts, His law, Only five of them don't explicitly mention it. And actually, there's a lot of people, a lot of commentators and theologians who think that four of those five actually imply, some of them clearly, Scripture. And so you can make an argument that every single verse in here, except one, references Scripture. This is a beautiful expression of Godward creativity. Drawing beauty out of language, human language, and reflecting it back to our Creator. Made even more beautiful... I think, as I reflected on this, was it is words, words meditating back to God on his words. This is a beautiful reflection of our capacity as image bearers 
The author is giving to God in worship the very thing he is extolling God for, his word. Even before we arrive at our little section in Psalm 119, as we look at the whole, we can consider the importance of our words, the words we use, giving them over to the Lord in worship. That's why singing is so central to what we do as Christians and to the Christian experience in church. It's a surrender to God of our beauty and our creativity and our words united in offering them to the Lord. And so as we reflect on this psalm, as we study it, that frames for us what this is, a reflection with our words on who God is, what he has done. And so in our psalm, Teth, as I said, there is a main idea to go along with the word of God. We're going to explore it and study it. Let's read it together and see if you can spot it as we read the text in its entirety once more. Starting in verse 65, the psalmist says, You have dealt well. With your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Did you catch the main idea? The word was repeated several times. This morning, the main idea we're going to look at is God's word provides a unique goodness God's people can taste. Only God's people can taste. The unifying theme along with the word of God is this idea of goodness. What is the goodness of God then? Begs the question, what is the goodness of God? When I say that phrase, the goodness of God, what comes to your mind? Well, first, what is good? What is good? After all, words matter, right? As we decided, good or goodness is that which is worthy or that which is worthy of approval. But then the question is, approval by whom? We all have different ideas of what is worthy and what is worthy of approval. What the The goodness of God is that which is approved by God himself. God is the final standard of goodness. And so what God describes as worthy, what God describes as good, what God describes as worthy of approval is what is good. And so what is the goodness of God? There is first who God is, and then there is what God does. Look with me at verse 68 in our psalm. We see this clearly. Verse 68 says, You are good. And do good. Teach me your statutes. So this poetic expression of worship that we are diving into this morning is primarily concerned with the goodness of God, but not in who God is necessarily, more what God does and what God has done. And there certainly is much to say about who God is and his goodness. It is an attribute of God his goodness. But even more than an attribute of God, it is an attribute of God that we can apply to every other attribute of God. The goodness of God is actually one of the deepest and most complex and hardest to wrestle with attributes of God, because we can say not just that God is good, but that his mercy is good, that his justice is good. Every attribute of God, by virtue of being worthy of approval, is good. Fortunately, we are not diving into that theological idea. We are going to explore this morning what the psalmist explores, 
And that is the goodness that God does. Now, there is a sense in the goodness, what God does, that it's universal. Meaning everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, will experience and enjoy even the goodness of God. The fact that the sun rises every single morning to melt the frost, to catalyze photosynthesis, to warm the earth, that is the goodness of God that all of us enjoy. The reality that rain falls to water crops, to give us food, to give us life, this is goodness of God literally poured out on humanity. You may say that's simply creation. That it's just how God designed it. It's not necessarily good, it's just creation. But what did God say when he created everything? It is good. It was good. God's goodness can be seen and felt by all of us, every Christian and non-Christian alike in many ways. In Colossians 1.17, we see Jesus himself holding everything together. Verse 17 says this, speaking of Jesus, and he, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means Jesus is actually holding every aspect of this universe together by his own power. It means every morning you wake up and take a breath. It is by the merciful goodness of Jesus whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we worship him or not, everyone partakes in the goodness of God. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And that is much to the consternation of God's people throughout history. Look at Jeremiah, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah says this, lamenting. Well, not lamenting, but complaining. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Long has there been lament by God's people and by Christians that the goodness of God is felt by all people, even the wicked. The fact that the same rain falls on their fields that falls on ours. So yet again, there is this aspect of God's goodness that falls upon all of us. But there is a sweeter and more potent goodness, tasted only by God's people. A unique goodness that only those who rest in the goodness of the gospel will taste. This goodness is rich and it is deep. This goodness transcends circumstances, as we're going to see this morning. It reaches beyond time and into eternity. It promises comforts and pleasures that this life cannot even scratch the surface of. This section in Psalm 119 is about the unique goodness of God that his people can taste, that we can feel as Christians, as believers, even in circumstances less than ideal. And we will see this big idea in kind of four main sections in the text. We're going to see the goodness of God in his faithfulness, the goodness of God in correction, the goodness of God in despair, and the great treasure of the goodness of God's word. Look with me at Psalm 119, verse 65 and 66. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. According to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. There we see the word good and good judgment. We also see it in verse 65, that 
word dealt well is actually the same word that's going to be used for good throughout the rest of the rest of the psalm. That dealt well is the goodness of God applied to his people. The psalmist is reflecting on God's good dealings with his people, good dealings that are according to his word. In other words, according to what God has said and what he has promised. Now, has God ever lied? Has he ever lied to his people? Has he ever made a promise and failed to deliver? Has he ever said he will do something and failed to do so? Of course not. And that's the idea that the psalmist is is buttressing here, that the faithfulness of God is good. That's our first point, the goodness of God in his faithfulness. So as we read the psalm, in verse 66, that word judgment isn't actually the same kind of judgment that's talking about uh, 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 punishment or final judgment. It's, talking, it's, a, it's a word that can actually be also translated as taste or discernment. So it is then that in God's good judgment, in his good discernment, he has determined to deal kindly, mercifully, and graciously with his people in all circumstances. So when God led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the desert, through the wilderness, towards the promised land, he made a covenant with them through Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave them the law that they shall observe and keep it, and he shall be their God and they shall be his people. They are uniquely portioned out among the kingdoms of earth to partake in the goodness of God. His protection from their enemies, his favor among the nations, through the law as an atonement for sin and sacrifice, through the law restraining evil and sin in their nation, specific and unique goodness applied only to the people of God. Reading through the Old Testament, you don't have to read very much to see how many times, how often, and how easily Israel fails to give up their end of the bargain, to keep the law and his commandments. And yet the Lord never abandons them. He disciplines them, but he never abandons them. When they arrive at the promised land out of Egypt and they send scouts into the the nations to plan their military excursions, they come back fearful, more afraid of the nations that that God is going to conquer for them than they have in the trust in the goodness of God. More trust, more than trust in the goodness of the God that led them out of Egypt, the God that sent the plagues to Egypt, the God that parted the Red Sea, the, the, the God that made manna fall from heaven. They did not trust in the goodness of God. And so the Lord condemned them, disciplined them to a generation of wandering in the desert as nomads. And as a generation passed away, he brought them once again to the doorstep of the promised land. And the Lord utters these words to Joshua in chapter 1, similar to what he said to Moses. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What follows is several chapters of Israel, Joshua as their leader, conquering stronger and mightier and bigger nations than themselves taking control of pieces of the land that God has promised them. See, at every point in the history of Israel that they break the covenant that they have made with God, it would have been perfectly just for God to wash his hands of them. And yet, 
in his discerning good judgment, he faithfully chose not to. Even in their rebellion, even in their idolatry, even in their neglect of him, even in their obstinate betrayal, God's good faithfulness is that he held them still. The clearest pattern of faithfulness, of this faithfulness we see, is in the book of Judges, where this pattern of rejection and redemption, rejection, or redemption, rededication, and rejection happens over and over and over again for the people of Israel. We saw it in the scripture reading in Ezekiel. Undoubtedly, this reality is in the mind of the psalmist as he composes this poem extolling the faithfulness, the good dealings of the Lord. How often do we doubt the good faithfulness of God? How often do we reflect this kind of gratitude toward the Lord for his consistent faithfulness, despite our lack of obedience and holiness? See, too often we harbor suspicion and unbelief toward the Lord and his word. We are tempted to think that there is goodness to be found in abandoning the new covenant in Christ in search of something more satisfying. And why is that? Why do we leave the good promises of the Lord spurred by our own doubt in his faithful goodness? Why do we, like Israel, do what is right and good in our own eyes and reject what God describes as what is right and good in scriptures, in the scriptures? Why do we seek our own way in entertainment, in our work, in our career? Why do we put different gods on the thrones of our hearts, pursuing them instead of the holiness of Christ? Because we've neglected his word. Because we do not cherish the scriptures as the psalmist does. Our hearts are betrayed by the contrast they draw with the psalmist in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Teach me. That is humility. Teach me, for I know not. Teach me. We live life as if we're the ones to determine what is good for us and what is right and what is wrong. We think so highly of our own needs and desires that we forget that we're image bearers created to reflect our creator. And yet our creator has graciously provided for us everything we need to do so in his word. If you wrestle with doubt, particularly as I have often, if you wrestle with doubt in the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord, Humble your heart and ask genuinely from God, teach me your commandments. Teach me your ways. Teach me what is good for me, what is good for my family, what is good for my community. Acknowledge your ignorance and finite foolishness to think that going it alone or figuring it out ourselves is what we must do to mature and grow up. Lord, teach me discernment and wisdom, good knowledge and good truth. Consider these two verses, Hosea 4, 6. It's one of these condemnations of Israel as they've once again failed to do what God commanded Joshua. They abandoned the scriptures and they abandoned the Lord. And Hosea, verse, Hosea 4, verse 6 says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Consuming the good law the good, the good law of scriptures, of scripture is essential for those that desire closeness with God, to be at peace with God, 
to commune with God. We need the scriptures. Consider also Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. It says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If we want to wrestle doubt away from our hearts, we must be immersed in the living waters of the word of God. If we want conviction that God's goodness is indeed good and that his faithfulness is sure, we must bathe our hearts in the texts of the Old Testament specifically, where the deliverance of God is never in doubt, where despite the failures of Israel, he is always there to pick them up. And as we read the Old Testament scriptures and we see over and over and over again a promised Messiah, a promised Savior, we, fortunate to live this side of the cross, live in the fulfillment of that reality. If we doubt the goodness of God, read the promises of Jesus to come and to die and to pay for our sin, through whom we have received a new covenant, a law of liberty, as James puts it, not bound not by our faithfulness and obedience to the law, but bound by the righteousness of Christ. If we want the good discernment of God, that is how then we shall now live, as people bought by the blood of Jesus, we consume the solid food of instruction in the New Testament, that our powers of discernment might be trained to discern what is good and what is right and what is honorable. If you want to reflect the goodness of God and his good dealings and rest in assurance, we must humbly posture ourselves as the psalmist and seek knowledge from the greatest weapon we have, the scriptures. The greatest enemy of doubt is the word of God. Unique to the Christian is the goodness of God's faithfulness. Our second point this morning in this section of Psalms is the goodness of God in correction. This is the first of two sections that deals specifically with sufferings and afflictions of the Christian. And if you know me, that is on brand. I like talking about that stuff. Um, we're going to see in Psalm 119, verses 67 through 68, the goodness of God in correction. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. See, we often pray for deliverance from our suffering. And I'm chief. I'm chief among those this would be true of. We find ourselves in a difficult moment, physical illness, relational strife, spiritual darkness, whatever it may be, we long for release from our pain. We long for release from our suffering. And then on the other hand, in moments of prosperity, I think we rarely acknowledge our need for deliverance. We rarely acknowledge our need. But I actually think it's in those times of prosperity where our need is greatest. For in suffering, we see our frailties. We see our failure so clearly that it's not a big leap to say that we need, that we need saving from our greatest failure, from the greatest relief of sin and death. But when we've grown so fat on the feast of prosperity... We callous our souls to suffering and even callous our view on the suffering of our Savior. And thus, before affliction, we go astray. We wander from the goodness of the Lord to revel in the temporary promises of this world. It is then that our feasting on the pleasures of the world lead us not into further prosperity, but to famine, 
It leads us into affliction. There are two things at work here. First, there's the consequences of sin. Naturally, there are consequences to sin. But the second, it is the Lord's discipline for his people. You see, sin separates. This is true of our relationship to God, and it's true of our relationship to one another as Christians. This is why Jesus said, love the, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets can be summed up with those two commands. It is often, it is often that our afflictions are a result of our sin and the separation therein. Relational strife, struggling at work, school performance, laziness and apathy, lust and temptation, all of these things create wedges, not just between ourselves and God, but between each other. And thus we experience the consequences and the suffering of our sin. And yet, what a glorious affliction that is. For without it, would we not continue our feasting? Feasting on the lies of this world? The lies of sin? Would we not continue to revel in the temporary, yet ultimately empty promises of sin were it not for the consequences from it? How can the goodness of God be seen in affliction and suffering? Through the discipline of the Lord, by the means of sin's consequences. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It is this reality of discipline and of consequences that frames the psalmist's posture of gratitude for suffering. For it was in his affliction that his conduct was refined. It was in his affliction that sharpened his obedience. It was in his affliction that sharpened his holiness. And it is in this posture that we can see yet again humility. Look at verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Yet again, we find the necessity of humility. Humility and the word of God. Here in our own sin, its consequences, and the repentance that follows, humility is central. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord that he may exalt you, James says. See, without humility, we become like Adam, deceived into a prideful assurance of our own worthiness and our own goodness. So we must be humble. What does this humility look like in affliction? Confessing and repenting of sin, both with the Lord in prayer and with others. And that's what the church is for. That's what discipleship is for. So let me ask you, when's the last time you sat down with another member of the church or someone that disciples you and confessed all of the sin that plagues your flesh? All of the lies that you believe all of the lies of this world that you trust in more than you trust in the goodness of God, when's the last time you confessed that and repented of that? With someone else, not just the Lord, which is vital, but with others. Others to help spur you onto godliness and righteousness. Where then is the instruction on what repentance looks like for whatever sin it is we find ourselves embroiled in? Where's the hope? It's in the word of God. Teach me what? Teach me your statutes, God's word. Unique to the Christian is the goodness of God in our correction. Third this morning is the goodness of God in despair. 
So the psalmist's consideration in the previous two verses was the affliction that leads to obedience, the affliction that sharpens us, that sharpens our holiness, the affliction that leads to a greater holiness. The focus here is on the endurance of the Christian and applying the previously sharpened holiness to the realities of persecution. Look at Psalm 119, verse 69 and 70. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. See, a painful reality for the people of Israel, even in their falling away and coming back, was the opposition they faced amongst the kingdoms of men. They hated Israel, and they hated the God of Israel. Every time that Israel abandoned their covenants with the Lord, and he gave them over to their enemies, they were subjugated, oppressed, afflicted, and enslaved. Hatred so deep that it would invent falsehoods to defame God's people, to justify their oppression. In the early church, the first several centuries, Christians were sporadically persecuted in the Roman Empire, immediately after the, the, Test- the New Testament era of Acts. One of the ways in which persecution was made palatable to the masses were rumors that would circulate about Christians. These rumors would take an idea native to Christian doctrine or Christian faith and pervert it in some way so as to paint the Christians in a bad light. For example, to the Christians, communion. It was the sacred sacrament, it is the sacred sacrament, of wine and bread representing the blood and body of Christ shed for us on a cross, and we consume it to remember it. To the Romans, though, Christians became cannibals, drinking blood and eating flesh. Another example to the Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus is celebrated as the most monumental moment in the history of mankind. Yet to the Romans, the Christians were a death cult, celebrating death, celebrating something so heinous. To the early early church, so embodied the good conduct of reflecting Christ and keeping his words that in order to find fault with them, The Romans needed to invent evils and lay it upon them. They needed to smear them with lies. To the world today, we are needlessly pious Christians. Christians are bigoted, self-righteous, close-minded and cold, unempathetic and unfeeling, foolish, ignorant, rejectors of science and reason, arrogant and self-centered, hypocritical and inconsistent However, unlike the early church, we in the West face little persecution. We endure fewer afflictions, I think in part because we don't embody the kind of obedience and holiness towards Christ and his word that the early church did. And those accusations of hypocrisy and arrogance and self-righteousness aren't invented evils, but realities for many of us, myself included. Few among us can say with the psalmist, we keep his precepts with what our whole heart. How many of us can say that? With every fiber of our being, we long nothing more than to obey God in his word. I'm certainly not there. We barely know his precepts. How then can we keep it? We do not chase holiness and piety with the vigor that we ought. I think it's fair to say in the post-Christian West that if we aren't facing some kind of persecution for our faith in Jesus or for our commitment to holiness or for our evangelistic vigor, then we probably aren't as faithful as we think we are. 
Look with me at John 15, verses 18 and 20, what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. Jesus said of his disciples, take up your cross, follow me, and suffer. He told them that they will be hated by the world, even their own families, for the sake of his name, for the sake of their conduct, and for the sake of trying to make disciples of all nations. Further, James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you seek to make friendship with the world, you make yourself an enemy to God. Now, does this mean we seek conflict? If we don't have it in our life, does it mean we should go out and find someone to argue with about, you know, why God is God and why Jesus is the Savior and why heaven and hell are real and why you should trust in Jesus? Should we go find those specific arguments with people? Should we create conflict? Should we be instigators? No, of course not. But what should we do? We should act with good conduct. We should be holy as he is holy. We should be salt and light so that they might know who we are, servants of Christ. We should evangelize and share the gospel with as much vigor and vitality and desperation as heaven and hell demand. Should we find ourselves in that place of faithfulness and facing persecution because of it, our response should be gratitude. Look what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed, blessed are those who are what? Persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. What falsely invented evils, as our psalmist said? On my account, rejoice and be glad for great, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad for that line of separation between the ways of the world and the ways of Jesus are so obvious and so evident that if you face persecution for the sake of Jesus and his name and for living as a servant of Christ and for sharing the gospel as we ought, you can have assurance to answer that doubt we saw earlier. You can have assurance that you're not on the wide road the easy road that leads to destruction and hell, but you are on the narrow path, the difficult path that leads to hope and eternity and peace. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, filled with those who have indulged in the pleasures of this life, as verse 70 says, have grown fat and they've grown calloused in their hearts and unfeeling towards the things of the Lord. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans 1 when he said God has given the unbeliever over to their sin. They feel it no longer. That consequence of sin, that refining and sharpening we saw earlier, it can't be felt by the unbeliever because they are unfeeling. And yet we delight in the law of God. We delight in the law of liberty even as we trod the rocky ground of the narrow way. And that delight carries us into the next verse, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted. 
For in our affliction, we learn obedience and are sanctified into the image of Jesus and represent our Savior as he represented us. Charles Spurgeon has a great line on this verse. He says, our worst is better for us than the sinner's best. Better is it for us to spend a lifetime as blind beggars, impoverished, broken, fatherless, childless, broken and beaten down, oppressed and rejected, and yet to have Christ. Then for all the comforts of this world, all the peace of today, all the pleasures of this life, yet to lack an assurance of eternity. In even your worst moments, you have cause for joy, for you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, secured in the book of life, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and guaranteed an inheritance beyond the best of this world. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 5, a heavenly dwelling, foundations whose cannot be shattered. Unique to the Christian is the goodness of God in our despair, in suffering, and in persecution. And finally, Point four this morning, the great treasure of the goodness of God in his word. We have none of this without God revealing it to us. Without the revelation of God to mankind in his word, we have none of this truth, none of this reality. We know none of it without the scriptures in which the Lord has invested his power and preserved truth. Look with me, the last verse of our section. The law of your mouth is better to me. That word better, that's that word for good, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The unique goodness of the Lord that he has preserved for his people is found in his word. That is why its value outstrips anything this life has to offer. For what is anything we've discussed today without the assurance of its truthfulness Without the authority of scripture, our hopes in this life are only but vague speculations. Vague speculations built on shaky sands of a finite intellect and fallen virtues. Such is the weight of what we have in the scriptures. More precious are they than any treasure we might build for ourselves. By them we can know God. We can know the goodness of God. By them, we can partake in the unique goodness of the Lord. Through them, we rejoice in suffering and do not be complacent, become complacent in our prosperity. In closing, I want to tell an origin story. I like the Marvel movies. Origin stories are fun. But I want to tell an origin story of St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. He's known for confessions and city of God, primarily. He's one of the most influential and important figures in the history of the church. Before he was a famous pastor, theologian, and apologist, he was a professor, a professor of rhetoric. If you don't know what rhetoric is, that's basically arguing, not to get at truth, but to be a better arguer, to be able to communicate regardless of whether truth is true or not. He's a professor of rhetoric. He was struggling to fight his flesh and his sin. He was, he was enslaved to his sin, particularly his proclivity for lust and sex, thievery and greed, and lying and falsehoods. So one day, sitting under a fig tree in Milan, the famous pastor was lamenting his struggles. 
giving over his anguish, crying out to the Lord to rescue him from his frailty and from his sin that was so destroying his life. And on the winds of providence floated to his listening ears from the mouth of a child playing somewhere he couldn't see the phrase, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. So he opened the scriptures. He landed on the book of Romans, particularly chapter 13, where Paul calls the Christian to holiness, specifically in those sins he was wrestling with, speaking directly to his flesh that enslaved him. And thus began the religious life of Augustine of Hippo. So unique to the Christian is the great treasure of the goodness of God in his word. So take up and read. Take up and read in times of poverty and in plenty. Take up and read in times of sorrow and in suffering. Take up and read in times of persecution and in peace. In every moment, take up and read. Meditate on scripture. Memorize scripture. Immerse yourself in the living waters of the word of God. If you want a tool that can help you do this, in the bookstore on sale for $5 right now is a book that a good portion of it, perhaps a third of it, is all about the scriptures. Immersing yourselves in the living waters of the word of God that we might grow into maturity, live holy lives that are pleasing and honorable and good in the sight of God. So take up and read. Let's pray. Father, I, I just I ask once again, as we prayed at the beginning, I pray for humility. So tempted am I to seek my own way, to do my own thing, to determine for myself goodness. Lord, I pray that you take this temptation from me. And if it be your will to wrestle with that temptation, give me the strength and the power through the Spirit to fight that temptation and to seek you where you are, where you have invested your power, where you have revealed yourself to me. I pray that for this church and this body, that we would be a, a body known for, your, for knowing your scriptures, for memorizing truth, for spouting incessantly the realities that you have given us, the unending and enduring truths of scripture. Lord, we love you. We cannot undertake this endeavor under our own power and strength. Lord, it is only by the power of the Spirit that we can even come close to what might look like faithfulness. So Lord, be with us. Break us if we do not feel broken. And Lord, encourage us when we are broken. Lord, we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.